Salam salam ishtanin singe. Welcome to the Samoa Network. This is Weiss, and I'm doing this intro solo today. I'm here to give you a brief introduction on our most recent podcast, but I also wanted to introduce some tragic news out of Afghanistan. Uh, I want to give a trigger warning for some disturbing content and violence. As many of you are probably aware, on November 2nd, 2020, gunmen entered Kabul University and opened fire at students. 22 students were killed and over a dozen more wounded. According to Tolo News, 10 of the 22 students killed were women. I'm at a loss for words about what to say about this tragedy. Kabul University was a place where both my parents were affiliated at one point. I'm just... I'm just sad. As someone who enjoy, enjoys coasting through Twitter, the second I see that Afghanistan is trending, I immediately tense up. My heart sinks, and I don't even have to click on the story because I probably know what the story is. But I do click on it, and I read it, and I'm instantly reminded of the struggles and dangers Afghans, particularly young Afghans, face. I can't divorce the story from the current situation affecting everyone right now. We are in the midst of a second wave of COVID cases. The rate of infection has increased. It has disproportionately killed people in black and brown communities. It has also impacted our community, our friends, our families. There is a dark cloud hanging over all of us. And I think it is important for each of us to reach out check on members of our community, over the phone and through FaceTime, of course, because all of our hearts are heavy right now and we need to be there for one another. In honor of the lives lost in Kabul University, I'm going to state the name of each victim. I'm also going to pause between each name to give each of you an opportunity to repeat the name and to help remember these brave individuals. Hedayatullah Sadat Muhammad Raoud Aruf Arif Ahmad Ali Muhammad Marzia Tahiri Suwaila Yari Mariam Hakimi Sara Habib Daud Ishak Hassani Yosufi Nadima Azizi Hanifa Afshar Idris Azimi Muhammad Rahib Amin Muhammad Bilal Hashimi Muhammad Ali Donish Ziba Asghari 
Husna Hakimullah Shir Shah Khushkai. Thank you for sharing that moment with me. Um, I'm now going to give you all a brief introduction on our most recent Facebook Live. Uh, as a production note, it was recorded on October 28th, 2020, before the attacks. So Ghazal and I had the pleasure to uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Sahar Moradi and Ghazal Samizai, uh, who are two members of the Afghan American Artists and Writers Association. We had conversations about what it means to be an Afghan American artist, what these identities mean to each artist. We will we also talked to them about how each of them navigate this world through being working artists, as well as how their identities have informed both their practice and helped shape their overall worldview. If you like what we do here at TSN, please subscribe for more episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate a nice review on iTunes, which will help us bring more content to more people. As always, thank you so much for listening. The Samovar Network. Network. Salam, everyone. Uh, my name is Weiss, and I am one of the coordinators for the Samovar Network. Uh, today, we are collaborating with members of the Afghan American Artists and Writers Association to discuss art's role within our diaspora. Um, the TSN. Uh, while this is the first conversation, we do not intend for this to be the only conversation. The uh, TSN podcast will pick up where we leave off and we will start interviewing different Afghan Americans and all sorts of different art forms and asking them about their specific craft and their background and everything like that, uh, deep diving into their work. We're also going to try to explore some more non-traditional art forms and to help explore what the term art is within our community. So if you want to continue to listen, be sure to su subscribe to our podcasts on Apple. Uh, before we get started, I also want to mention that our collaborators today, uh, AWA, has another event coming up this Friday, October 30th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, titled uh, Reimagining Queer Futures, Afghans, and Art in the Diaspora. The, uh, the details of this event can be found on their IG page, which is AAAWA underscore art or uh, AAAWA.net. Uh, and then we'll find more details about this. Uh, you know, we'll discuss more details about this uh, towards the end of the, this conversation. Uh, first, I just want to start by introducing myself. My name is Weiss. I'm one of the facilitators. I'm also one of the coordinators for the Samoan Network. Uh, I've been a part of them for about two years now and I'm based in Los Angeles. Um, everyone. Thanks Weiss for the great introduction to uh, Ada, uh, I'm sorry, not Ada, I'm sorry, TSN <laughs> and AWA. Um, my name is Ghazal. I'm also a coordinator 
and will be co-facilitating this conversation for the Some of Our Network. Um, I am based out of the Bay Area, California. Hi everyone, thanks for having us here. My name is Gazelle Samizai and I live in San Francisco. Um, I'm a multimedia artist and I work pre predominantly in video and photography and a lot of my work does address my bicultural identity of being Afghan-American. Hey everyone, my name is Sahad Muradi. I go by she, her, hers. Uh, I'm based currently because of COVID in New Jersey near my family, but I'm usually and will return to New York City, Bahaid. Um, I'm a writer. Uh, I focus mostly on poetry, but I also write uh, prose and occasionally dabble in visual arts, um, such as bookmaking, printmaking, and uh, love collaborations. Um, as I did with Gazelle, we'll talk about that later. Um, and I'm really happy to be here, thanks. Thank you both for coming on. And actually you raised a good point. My pronouns are he, him. And uh, the first, so the first kind of topic that I wanted to talk about is this idea of art being seen as a, as a narrative and as a story. I know that traditionally, Afghan, especially when it comes to poetry, things like that, they, it's a very, there's a lot of or, oral storytelling going on. Um, but I remember having a conversation with Sahara at some other point that it seems like a growing trend is to uh, not necessarily focus on storytelling as one long narrative, but rather something that's fragmented and fractional. So Sahara, I don't know if you want to share some of your thoughts on sort of that, that process. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I love, you know, the Afghan tradition of storytelling as we understand it, like a traditional oral storytelling. Um, out the, I worked on an anthology with Zora Said that takes its name from that practice. You know, it's, it's called One Story, 30 Stories, which is one way that in, in Dedi storytelling or Farsi storytelling, tales would start. Afsona, Sisona, the Chilmurak, the Yakhona, da da da. It's like one story. Well, Afsona, sorry, and I'm like trying to translate. Um, but yeah, I personally, um, so while I love that and I honor that, um, I, in our work, even on the anthology, and this was about 10 years ago, we noticed that a lot of our submissions at that time were coming from poets and mostly from women poets. Um, and it was interesting, and as a poet, I, it was interesting to me that that was the choice more so than fiction or non, you know, um, more so than fiction and nonfiction, um, because I think it we and we wrote a little bit about this in the introduction, but it seems like, f at least for me too, that writing in poetry as opposed to in um, you know working in the story or a narrative mode, there's something about that idea, yeah, fragmentation of, you know, these, um, of like distilling these images as opposed to telling a linear narrative. Um, there's something also really, for me, exhilarating about it being 
like being undefined, you know, poems can take all sorts of shapes and can be very ambiguous. So this, you know, there's not really a clear beginning, middle and end, at least in my work. Um, so it's, and I was, we've been, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and Zora and I would talk about it a bit too at that time that is like, it, could this have been sort of a reaction or a response to growing up, coming of age in the U.S in the avant diaspora, diaspora um, sort of um, at a time that um, we, I think you, you mentioned this wise too about like how, you know, when we hear our families' migration stories, sometimes we don't get them in their full narrative. Like we get them in these drips and drabs and pieces and, you know, we sort of have to dig for them. And I feel like the combination of those experiences of like the rupture of leaving or being the first generation to, if you didn't leave, then maybe you were the first generation to be born here. At, you know, so I'm talking, I guess, of, of my generation, um, that that, com that combined with this um, sort of trying to distill these fragments or comb through or make sense of, like sort of lent itself to poetry. Um, but, um, of course, we also in Afghanistan have this great tradition of poetry. So it's not that it's either or, but I think the point being that, I guess, for me, writing or, or composing, whether it's oral or, um, or written, falls under that tradition of literature. But I think what's happening today with the Afghan diaspora is interesting. It might be some, yeah, it's interesting to think about a sort of a, a reaction to to our experiences. Yeah, Gazelle, uh, so I know that you do a lot of audio, like video uh, uh, pieces. Do you find yourself even wanting to go through things in a linear oral storytelling way? I think some of my pieces definitely have that narrative where there's a beginning, middle, and end. But then I also have, um, some videos that use more than one channel or more than one screen. And so you're kind of getting bits and pieces of a story from two different angles. Um, and I think that that idea of fragmentation and the idea of also how when you recall memories or stories, you know, you also recall them in bits and pieces. Um, I think it's really interesting to then try to express that visually and I think doing so using a more experimental form of multi-channel helps does that. Yeah, I mean, I know that when I, I hear that Afghans have like this rich history of these oral traditions and storytelling and things like that. And the first thing that comes to my mind is like, you know, at least when it comes to my family and my parents, they can't they can't tell the story from beginning to end. Even, <laughs> even the story of how they came to the U.S. is not a story that I've heard from beginning to end. I, you know, we took this flight on this day. This Every, every conversation I have with them, it seems like I learn another piece of information that I had not known before or that they had not shared before, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally. So... I do find this this aspect pretty fascinating because it's like, you know, our, our story is fractional, at least I, I can only speak about mine, but the story is fractional because it's like this, you know, the 
it's 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 a like in just in that term it's it's something that is fractioned it's broken things like that like when it comes to how they came to the u.s it's not just one simple thing but just and within within our own community it fractionalized it broke there was there was communities in afghanistan and in kabul when it comes to my parents and all of those communities uh for one way or another broke and split apart and now we have all these different aspects to it so yeah i've I find that I find that pretty fascinating. Yeah, I I loved I loved it when you said undefined and ambiguous and not linear, because much like the stories of our parents that we hear in fragments, I feel like this is also so much of how we think and process. You know, like our own narrative of our own lives. Like we pick up certain aspects of our own lives and define and redefine them for ourselves and communicate them in maybe in an unambiguous, in a ambiguous and undefined way. So I think that's really um, a beautiful way of capturing it. And I guess I also think about, so my background in design is more in like city planning and architecture and space. So I think about things that are undefined and ambiguous, how that's received by people. And, um, and I guess, when it's hard for people to understand or make sense of because we're so used to think of thinking of things in a linear way, mm -hmm. even the concept of time in a linear way. Um, how did, how did you two land upon your form of art? Like how, how is it, how did you grasp that? How did you grasp the ambiguity um, and kind of embrace it and take off with it? Um, if mm -hmm. either of you want to approach that. <laughs> Well, I, I started. Okay. <laughs> sorry, I think I started quite literal and then got more ambiguous. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, definitely like nine eleven and seeing the images of Osama bin Laden's training camps and the way that Afghanistan was portrayed. I wanted to use like the same medium, which was like lens-based media, to tell stories about Afghanistan. And okay. so, I would say like initially, like. When I, and I had prior to that done like drawing and painting and stuff, but my first like more serious dive into photography was doing kind of like documentary style. First, I went to Iran in July 2001 because it was kind of like the closest I could get to Afghanistan at that time. Um, but like along with the photos, there were kind of little stories about my journey. And then I was able to go to Afghanistan in 2005. And it was kind of a similar approach where I was, for example, I saw the hospital where I was born, which was like, it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, you're born. And then when you see the place, you're like, oh, I really was born. <laughs> I really was born here. Um, so, and then eventually I think because I was doing so much storytelling in the photos, it was a natural transition to video. Um, and I think like one of my first video pieces is called Nosha John. And there's a lot of layering of like Pashto and diary and English. Um, uh, very quickly, just so you can explain for those who may not know Farsi, what does Nosha John mean? Oh, it's kind of like Bon Appetit. It probably has other <laughs> meanings too, but that would probably be the simplest. Um, and then as I mentioned before, like I've gotten to more experimental where I'm very much interested in like 
trauma and how that's passed down intergenerationally. And I think that um, like disrupted storytelling conveys that better sometimes than a linear story. Thank you. So how did you want to? <laughs> well, I kind of like want to respond to Gazelle because uh, that was the first time I've heard you talk about seeing the hospital you were born in. And um, it just reminded me of traveling back to Afghanistan with my father and similarly like watching him say like, oh, this is where, you know, this is where I grew up or this is my school or suddenly it's like the colors started filling in in this outline that I'd been carrying around of him for so long. It's like, oh yes, you did have a boyhood, right? You were, you were a young person once. Um, but yeah, it was just, it just was really beautiful to hear you say that and sort of like the kind of epiphany. Um, for me, I think uh, I came into writing, uh, so I was born in Afghanistan, but came here at the age of three um, and you know, struggled with English a little bit at the start, but then at some point it's like I just fastened to the language, partly out of survival, you know, it's like I needed to like sort of conquer this or I needed to get a grip on this. Um, but it was in middle school that I had my sort of artistic, like, I don't know, eureka moment. Uh, I remember sitting in sixth grade class, uh, we had our textbooks, it was an English language arts class. I grew up partly in New York, but this was in Florida when my parents, talking about like ruptures, we made a very abrupt move in the middle of my fourth grade year. And I was in this new um, school, new classroom, and the, the chapters between, or sorry, each chapter in the textbook began with like a, an, a poem or an excerpt of a poem. And there was one poem, I just remember reading it and being like, <gasps> and it's not even a great poem. I, I'll even say it, it's not even a great poem, but it's something like, the brittle grass is made of glass that clinks and shatters when we pass. It's something, 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 and shatters like a music, music box. But there was something so cool to me in that moment about like the sonic, the sound quality, like the rhyme, the gentleness, the, the, the metaphors that I, I just, it's like something opened. And from there I had like a series of very championing uh, educators, te classroom teachers who just encouraged me, you know, in eighth grade, my math teacher of all teachers gave me a, a notebook and said, just write right, 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 right. And he gave me the collected works of Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm. And that was another Eureka moment because here was a, a writer also writing in, in, you know, what I was feeling at the time was like very othered and um, having a difficult time growing up in a predominantly, um, well, just, I mean, there were no other Afghans around. It, we lived in a multiracial um, environment in Florida, but we were, you know, there were no Afghans for for days, but um, so what, uh, yeah, that was sort of the beginning for me, I, I would say that in sixth grade, but then I, I um, and I continued to write and experimented more in college with uh, narrative, with uh, fiction. I did a, a major in um, creative writing. And then over time also with the, I feel like my, my work took, like I was very interested in experimentation and breaking forms, prose poetry, um, and um, yeah, over time just ex like moved from like writing about family 
uh, which seemed, was, was very important to me in the beginning and sort of documentation to personal experience, to politics, to, um, you know, and so it goes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to trail off many times during that's this okay. conversation. That's okay. I'm, I, one thing I was very impressed by was the fact that all of this, uh, start, not started, but all of it was fed into by a math teacher, which go math teacher to be the one to give you a Langston Hughes poem book. And, Mr. And, Bowen! Uh, so actually, you know, something that seemed in common with both of you that I'm actually curious about is the fact that it sounds like both of you, I may have misheard, uh, have gone back to Afghanistan in, in your later life. So I'm just curious in terms of your own personal work, how much is it that informed by your return, if, if at all? I mean, how much did, does the return feature in the work? Both or? feature or influenced by or something like that. Mm. I say this as someone who has not been there. So I'm just curious as, as far as, you know, the, the idea of, yeah, the, that return going back, especially since um, I think both of you were born there, if, I, if I'm not incorrect. But uh, yeah, that, that return, how much that maybe plays some factor in terms of what, how your work is. I think it helped me have a more nuanced view of things. I think when I went, I was kind of like naive. Um, you know, I think I kind of bought into this idea of women being, you know, about the burqa being like a very dominant issue for women there. And then when I went, they're talking about like unemployment and how their husbands can't get jobs and they're worried about getting their kids. And it, it was like, duh, <laughs> like burqa is like the last thing on their mind. Um, so I think it helped me understand kind of my place or identity and also also helped me understand it's like I'm Afghan but I'm also really more Afghan American and I really can't speak for Afghan women there um like in my life you know people have asked me to speak at events and things and they're coming at it from like this idea that I'm some kind of representative and I'm really not so I think it made me take a more personal approach in my work to speak more about my own experiences um, so that I'm not like stereotyping or speaking for, for people that I really can't speak about because I just don't have that experience. Yeah, um, for me, I, I'm gonna kind of go back a little to the first question because it's tied to this, which is that I grew up um, listening to my father's stories uh, about Afghanistan. My, my mother also, but more so my father, and he, not just personal stories of growing up there, but a lot of historical narratives and um, and also poetry. I grew up with like the tradition of, of consulting Hafiz, like to, for your fall or for your uh, astrology, if you, if you will, um, horoscope. Um, so 
like th that was in the air, like the, the, the homeland was in the air at all times. And I was very attuned to the way that my, like, you know, my father could only be as present as, as he could with, with the weight of the past so heavy. So I, there was always like this desire to, to see this mythical place and, and as a way of like also nearing him and, and, my, and my knowing them better. And so when the opportunity came in um, 2003, um, I had just, you know, um, finished college and um, there was an opportunity to return and work there. And that was the only way my father kind of would give permission or his blessing was um, if there was something to go to do and if he could drop me off, which of course was like my dream in the world, you know, like this was, this was going to be the great homecoming. And what it was, was it was just very profound on a lot of levels. Um, you know, see like being on that airplane with like all these exiles returning or exiles, how do you say that? Um, you know, as soon as we crossed over from Iran to Afghanistan, it's like the plane erupted in tears and my thought, like here was like this, the most intimidating person in my life just breaking down like a boy. And it was like really, it was a very profound experience for me and for him because it changed, it altered his relationship to the US. But in terms of it, like then influencing my writing, um, I ended up staying there and I, I stayed for two years and I lived and worked there and I was keen on improving my daddy, my Farsi skills and, and also just learning and um, observing and reconnecting with family. So a lot of that did enter my writing. But again, kind of like what you're saying, like not, you're not the representative, Ghazal, you're saying like, I also, I mean, I wasn't Afghan enough when I was there, you know, but you know, in terms of how other people around me perceived me, and that was told to me, so I'm, I'm not making that up. Um, but uh, so I, it, it, it entered in like a very, like sort of a grappling with, like how do I grapple with all of this? So again, like questions, fragments, I feel like that was my way of trying to sort of understand what was happening to me as a young, you know, I was in my 20s, like 21 or 22 when I went there. And I also feel like very naive at that time. And, um, and then I brought, so af like after those two years there, and a lot happened personally and obviously, you know, globally to Afghanistan during that time. It's like entered post facto now in ways, like in terms of recalling I've never written directly about that experience. It's something I'm still working on. I'm still processing a lot of that time, but um, it's definitely informed my relationship to the culture and my family, and that gets translated in the work in other ways. So, I you know I have this dream that one day I'll do a theater piece. Um, I do a little theater, but I would love to do like a one-person show on that time. So if any of you out there our playwrights get in touch with me. <laughs> That's incredible, Sahajan. Thank you for sharing the experience of homecoming. Um, I went, just a quick anecdote, I went to Avonasan as well. I think it was maybe 2007, and at that time I was an architecture student. And so for me, um, I think I, I distinctly, like it was such a blur. I don't know if you 
can share that experience, but it was, it was such a blur just being there and taking in everything. But for me, the most distinct aspect of it was like the interplay of light, like with the mountains. Cause I want, you know, in Cabo, it was surrounded by mountains and it was so beautiful and it made me feel so at home in a very, very strange way. Just that vision of light and the, the beams of Ray, the, the you know the sun rays and then also in between the buildings and between the open windows like there's always these like very very interesting light patterns so when I went back to the United States I took I feel like I took that with me I feel like I understood light in a very very different way um, in my own work so that um, trying to recreate that sense of being at home and um, seeing into spaces in a very very different way in a very intentional way I feel like I brought it, um, I, I tried to bring it a lot into my work. So um, thank so you for beautiful. sharing your experiences. Yeah, thank you for sharing your experiences because it just brought me back to that moment. It's like, why, how did we, or how did you all, I don't, I can't consider myself uh, an artist at your level, but how did we all um, approach what people consider art um, in our own work, in our own day-to-day -day lives? And it's so much of it is, can be, I want us on this very profound experience, emotional that it, eventually translates into um, how you see your personal work, I guess. Mm. So another thing that, and it sounds like uh, each of you have kind of hinted at this conversation, but this, this idea of being, you know, not, or feeling like you're the Afghanness versus the Americanness and sort of the interplay between the two, um, and so, and I actually recall, so how did you and I having this conversation, uh, whether, you know, that you choose not to literally, when you refer to yourself as Afghan American, like you, there's no hyphen. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit further. Uh, so just in that kind of that genuine question of, you know, why, why no hyphen? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I was not, the started articulate and then it just ended with. <laughs> no, you're getting to the point. That's, I like, yeah, that's, that's a great question, I think. Um, and it was, I think, some conversations at AWA before we decided, or I can't, now I can't remember actually if, if it was from the beginning that we did, didn't have a hyphen, but we've discussed it. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of the Afghan American Artists and Writers Association, it was an intentional decision not to have a hyphen. I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, discourse on this in different um, diaspora, among different diaspora communities in the United States. And for some folks, the hyphen, whether you're talking about Afghan American or African American or Asian American or um, some folks thought like that it's the thinking is it's it, it's the first part is almost like a description or a modifier or an adjective like informing the second part so it diminishes the first part so it's almost like what kind of American and Afghan American and the Afghan is smaller compared to the American or the some folks feel like it's a hyphen makes it like a type of American, yes, it, it modifies, it's a type of American, but it's not a full American, right? You have that bloody little thing. And, um, and so the thinking for me, I think is like, yeah, the, I am, I am both. And it's not, 
I'm, it's not a, it's like sort of like um, honoring the, both my Afghan heritage and my American upbringing in, in like with, with the same amount of honor, I would say. I was going to say in equal parts, but it's different on different days. But it's mm -hmm. definitely like, you know, it's not one or the other. It's not a little bit of this and a lot of that. It's, 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 it's moving. And, so, and I think that's why I sometimes prefer, I don't, I mean, language, even though I work in language, it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of shortcomings and nothing gets near enough. But, so, you know, sometimes you hear hybrid and there's something about that that I kind of like because it, it's a back to that, those ideas of like multiplicity that we were talking about earlier about ambiguity. And Ghazal, when you were saying like earlier about ambiguity too, it's like, I felt it, in, you know, it's like, it's empowering. It's, this is not, um, this is not something that is, it's something that I'm, I'm grateful for. The fact that I do have these multiple identities and that I, I can draw on both. And my experience of being Afro-American unhyphenated is totally different from each one of yours. And so that's also an important thing for me. It's not like, um, it's multiple and it's unique and I wanna honor it that way. Do you use the hyphen, Gazelle? No, but probably. I do, I do believe like Awa kind of influenced me, like that conversation influ influenced me. I think I had prior, um, but I think you put it very beautifully. Um, this idea of like a, a descriptor and, you know, I want to say in, just in the last year or two, I had this bad habit of saying, oh, he's American, meaning he's white American. Mm which I realized was then implying that if you're not, you know, you're some, if you're of Indian descent or whatever, you're not really that kind of American. I guess that's a whole nother conversation itself because obviously we have this like political climate that defines certain types of Americans. But I just realized for myself, I have to be better and assert <laughs> that all these identities are American. I, I really hear you. I've had that experience at work. I've been guilty of the same, like writing grant language for like getting funding for something that helps Americans ha have a better understanding of Muslim cultures. And it's like, wait a minute, Muslims are part of America or the United States. Muslims are Americans as well. But it's, it's, it's like so entrenched in our psyche and on our um, yeah discourses and just like this this world yeah this view that American equals white so yeah that's that's a really great transition to what I was curious about next and that's essentially how often do either of you find yourself in spaces where you're the only Avon or person of color or woman of color to be even more specific especially in the art world yeah mm -hmm. I think, well, it's been great working with Awa and we put on a, an exhibit last November of, of mainly Afghan artists. And so that was wonderful. It was a way to like meet and be exposed to so many Afghan artists. I would say in general, I don't, you know, when it's just random chance, I'm usually not showing with other Afghans. Um, I would say that 
I do, I am in spaces with other people of color and maybe that's also in part because of like the themes of my work that often have to do with identity. And um, again, like probably another really big conversation about these kinds of exhibits that focus on identity or focus on Afghanness and whether that's positive because those those artists are getting their work out there or if really that those artists and their work should be part of the general like art canon um you know showing at the whitney or wherever despite the theme of the show having anything to do with identity yeah for me awa was the choice to make a space you know that didn't exist so i i helped found it with zora and in 2000 and mm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry i have to check our own website i can't remember but um so yeah i when I grew up in New York, I was surrounded by Afghans in our apartment building in Queens. And then, you know, that fourth grade move I told you guys about, like that just set me on a different course. And suddenly, um, for years and years, there were no other close Afghan families except for distant ones in Virginia that we would visit or other family from around the country. Um, but it was in college, yeah, sorry, in college and grad school also, um, I was the only uh, person of color in my MFA program in poetry at Brooklyn College, which their undergraduate program is probably one of the most diverse campuses, I think. Um, but so it was, that was also like a very odd experience to be like this sort of bubble. Um, I was, but I, I like, um, like Bazell, I, I, I have found myself desiring, seeking, and luckily finding spaces of, um, yeah, that are POC or women of color or Asian American. Um, I mean, that's another interesting topic. It's like where Afghanistan fits. Like, mm -hmm. you know, is it uh, like the Middle Eastern group? Is it the Asian? Anyway, um, so that's been a total balm in my artistic life is finding those spaces. Like the Asian American Writers Workshop in New York City was a early home for me in terms of workshop, in terms of having a platform to read, connecting to other writers who also were exploring some of these themes that I was interested in, in terms of home, identity, multilingualism, and also not just that, right? Like I want also to be I want the ability to write about that, but I don't want to be expected to write about that. So um, just having a space um, for that has been great. There's other, there's so many wonderful organizations, um, you know, like Kundiman that supports um, Asian American writers. Um, uh, yeah, tons of others, but um, I think that, um, so it, it, it's been it's been an intentional um, move for me to find those spaces and and that has been yeah priceless. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, uh, going back to especially when we're talking about occupying different kinds of spaces, things like that, which is this concept of 
representation versus tokenization. The idea that like, and I and I, I mentioned this uh, like in a pre-call before, but I mean, I had done just as more of a hobby, like I've done sketch writing and I've done some creative writing. However, I found it that I wasn't, what I was writing about didn't really tap into my Afghan identity as much, at least back then when I was writing it. And I was just wondering, have have either of you come across any instances where you felt that you had to sort of quote unquote perform your Afghanness, whether it was, um, you know, trying to maintain the line between, uh, you know, being a representative and wanting to do something in, in a representative format, but not in a way that you are tokenizing the faith and tokenizing your culture, things like that. Have you? Have either of you had those instances before or thoughts about it? I feel like for me, oftentimes it's in Afghan spaces where I feel like I have to perform my Afghanness. Like it's, um, you know, I, I, we grew up in such an, like compared to my cousins, my relationship to, Islam and even Farsi, it, it was much, it was very different and um, I would say like more removed in many ways. Um, that's changed over time. But um, so I feel like there was all this pressure both from my parents and sometimes just from my relatives to like, yeah, like get more Afghan. And, um, and then also when I went back to Afghanistan, um, that happened often, you know, I just remember like walking down the street in Kabul and somebody saying, like I was with my cousin and um, this was 2003 or four. And, you know, I had like, a, I had maybe a little bit of my scarf up and you could see a little bit of the back of my neck. And I guess it was red or something, but someone basically compared me to a rhubarb walking down the street, which was <laughs> not nice. Harsh. Yeah, harsh. So harsh. I mean, I I, can't, I won't even say it in Farsi, okay? No, but um, no, it was yeah. So I was, but I just felt like I had to. I was more under the microscope in those spaces. Uh, not always, but in, you know, in, in some in some occasions with family or, or in like wedding parties and things like that, or back in Afghanistan in certain areas. Um, so I haven't felt it um, so much in like white spaces or non-Afghan spaces to perform. I mean, it was more like like the exotification. On the other hand, you know, it's like, oh, tell us about, or like, is it true, or you know, pre 9-11, it's like, where, you know, where is that? It's like, where in Africa? And so there's like gross ignorance or, you know, so it's like, um, and today I don't think that it's an issue for me anymore. I feel like I'm wearing my plugging blingistan here, my Dylan Boyskillum. <laughs> oh, look at that. Which basically means I don't give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good points. I hadn't really thought about that, but I have to agree that I think 
the pressure to perform has been more in Afghan spaces. Um, and I think as I kind of touched on before, you know, there have been expectations in non-Afghan spaces to be like some kind of representative um, and so I try to just be very like clear and honest about like my background and uh, how I approach things. I would say also some non-Afghan Americans, like if I tell them, I don't know if you all have this problem when someone asks you, where are you from? And then I never know what are they really asking. So now I have this long answer. <laughs> Because sometimes I say, oh, I'm like from Afghanistan. And they're like, no, where did you grow up? And then I feel stupid. Or I say, <laughs> I grew up in Washington. No, but where are you really from? So now I just say, I was born in Afghanistan. I grew up in Eastern Washington. <laughs> like just, but some people, they say like, if I tell them I'm Afghan, they're like, oh, but, but you weren't born there. Or you didn't, you didn't grow up there. Or like, they see me and they see the way I speak and they're just like, I'm not Afghan enough for them. Um, so that's interesting too. It's like, because I don't fit their particular stereotype of how, how an Afghan woman dresses or whatever. That's, thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess I also wanted to talk, since we're talking about, you know, being Afghan and art, is Afghan art, I guess around the concept of decolonizing art, is Afghan art always considered art? Um, and I guess just to dig in a bit, like um, thinking about the way functional works are often considered art by the Western gaze and traditional versus contemporary art. If you feel comfortable speaking to this particular topic, it'd be cool to get your insight. Either of you. <laughs> um. I'm also curious to hear from you guys <laughs> up with these questions. You've clearly thought about this, so you should also jump in. Um, yeah, I, I don't uh, feel equipped to speak um, broadly about Afghan art in terms of art coming out of Afghanistan or art created by Afghans. Like I can speak to those that I'm familiar, you know, things that I'm, folks work that I'm familiar with. But I will say that, um, you know, this idea of traditional art, uh, I work at a nonprofit that, um, you know, it's, we work in cultural stewardship, so sort of uh, fostering living cultural heritage uh, or preserving it or amplifying it. And we often have this conversation because we work with a lot of, quote, traditional artists, and sometimes those Oftentimes those artists do refer to themselves as traditional artists because they are tradition bearers. They come from a lineage of art makers. There's like an apprenticeship mm. model of coming into the art, which I think does happen in some of the arts that come from Afghanistan, some of those mm. traditional arts. But then there's also, I think, pushback from some folks who don't want that name or that language attached to them because there's a certain image that goes with that or yeah there's like sort of almost like a denigration or it just becomes about functionality um 
or like, um, you know, like in Afghanistan, we know there's a market in the West for Afghan handicrafts, but those are also pieces of art. So, um, I mean, it, it, I think the question is really about the person who's creating that work and how they mm. designate themselves. Like mm. they should, it's up to them. And um, however they choose to be seen is how they should be seen. Um, but yeah, so I, I, can't, I can't speak more than that. No, thank you for taking it there. That's very um, enlightening. I actually didn't know any know much about the apprenticeship, um, so it's good to know. Yeah, I think like in in like with, with music, you know, mm -hmm. you have like the teacher student. Oh, like the stud and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. It's coming together yeah. again. <laughs> thank you. Gazelle, do you want to share anything or? It's a convoluted question. I understand like throwing it out there. I just wanted yeah. to make it a little difficult. <laughs> I don't think it's convoluted, but yeah. I think it's complicated. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I do see exhibits that are focused on Afghan quote unquote quote crafts. And I think that sometimes there's an idea that those traditional crafts are like authentic or more Afghan than what someone might make that doesn't follow that form like is maybe considered more contemporary and i think that that idea could kind of um put afghanistan and also other countries and cultures you know there's this happens a lot across the board but it kind of puts them stuck in time like that they don't evolve or that they're not multifaceted so I think, um, yeah, I hate to see when, when art is like presented in those binaries instead of like, oh, there's so many different kinds of expression within that sphere. I think that's a really good point, actually. That makes me think of how, yeah, some folks now like in the diaspora are like drawing that into question by, by using sort of traditional textiles and doing something else like and not just in diaspora i should say also in afghanistan right like fashion designers in afghanistan drawing on like some traditional um clothing but now it you know like sort of doing these like mashups with like other type of like western clothing i mean i have i feel like i have to just keep my hands up here the whole time <laughs> but um i just think that's a that's a really good point like that it some people can see it as like frozen, like tra traditional arts don't evolve or like they're also not contempt, like they're of the past and from the past when actually they're now as well. Hmm. Well, even, even that having that conversation of like contemporary versus, you know, traditional or things like that, it's like you define them by, you define what is what by basically like what is being validated by like white people <laughs> where it's this idea that like you know a an oil canvas painting of a pomegranate is seen as more of a modern style of something versus like you know a textile or a carpet or something like that that is seen as like quote-unquote traditional like what makes one what what defines one as contemporary what defines one as traditional um and how do we take that out of the lens of like Americans and mm -hmm. the 
Western style of these defining things in these kinds of terms. I find it interesting just because it's like, I mean, I fall victim to it too, right? It's like the whole conversation of modernity in general, where it's like what we define as modern or contemporary is something which transcends even uh, art, right? Because Mm -hmm. even when people talk about like, oh yeah, like Afghanistan used to be a lot more modern. And it's like, why do they, what, how do they define what that means? It's because it's like girls were wearing skirts and weren't covering their hair, Uh, you know, or it wasn't a mandatory thing. Like that is considered modern because it, they're dressing like Jackie Kennedy. Like it's, you're Mm -hmm. still using a Western lens to define it. Uh, And so I guess when we talk about like decolonizing, because, and I've I've mentioned this before, whenever I hear the word decolonizing, I kind of wince a little bit just because I think it's a word that people like to use and maybe like understanding or grappling with what it means. And I think within the Afghan space, uh, part of what that means is like, not just what language are we using or sorry not what language is being used about our country but also the language that we're using ourselves about Afghanistan I fall victim to it I've I've written in art I've written articles about how Afghanistan used to be quote-unquote modern and that's because I that's because I was using it under an American lens Mm. and so even though like I am an Afghan American like I still used basically colonized language when I described like the country and and that's not to say that like how things used, you know, like during more repressive times, particularly repressive towards, you know, Afghan women, things like that. Like it's not to normalize or be okay with that, but it's still understanding the language that I'm using and what, given the fact that like I'm speaking predominantly in English, which is also a colonizing language. Like it's, there's just a lot to unpack that I think is interesting not just within the art space, but just within our own language in general. And I can see that happening within the art space because I've seen like, you know, different kinds of contemporary art. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what makes this contemporary? Let's break down why we're having this conversation. That's really interesting. It just brought to mind so many different like things I've looked at in the past. Like, for example, like, the old master plan of Kabul was called Kabul al-Jadid, right? Like the new Kabul. And I think about during that time, which was in the, like, in the early 19th, 1900s, how that, how our Afghans vision of themselves even, like how we view ourselves and our own peers and how that affects, like, how that affects how we, um, you know, how we work, I guess, so to speak. So I think mm-hmm. about, um, when you brought up the example of like every, the women dressing as Jackie Kennedy and when people say like Afghanistan was so modern in the past, I, it like makes me wince as well because I'm like, like, you, like what, like what is modern? And, you know, there's whole like studies on this about how, you know, I don't know, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to go to a place that I don't want to go to right now. And <laughs> I can see myself going there, but you know, it, it's, like why is, you know, being attached to the land and growing land and agriculture less modern than like having a shiny glass building, you know? And I think about that in my workspace 
And it is because it's been defined by like the World Bank, for example, or the, these large institutional institutions of the West, um, what modern means and what development means. And um, it definitely transcends into like art and all those other spaces. So thank you for allowing me that tangent. <laughs> oh, that's so necessary. And I love when we like push back like this, you know, I think that art, it's like, because they keep setting the terms and yeah, like, I mean, I think we could do a whole TSN conversation just on the Jackie O dress and the mini skirts. Like, um, I think we've even had some chai chats at, in Awa about, um, about things like that. But I just wanted to say real quick because um, Weiss, you also mentioned um, how, um, you know, we also as artists or as creators or just Avalons like, need to sort of keep our own language in check. And just to like bring it back to something positive or like uh, I, I, I'm really excited by the art that is being made by Afghan Americans and, and, and other Afghans in the diaspora, which is what I'm familiar with. Not to say I'm not excited by artists in Afghanistan, but I'm more familiar. Um, and because that's what they're doing, they're also like very, many of them are questioning their positionality in terms of, I think what you were bringing up before Gazelle too, about like, who am I to say, like, like, well, first, like, who, who do I want to speak with? Like, I'm thinking of Jamil John Kochai's book, 99 Nights in Logar. How cool that they're not like, Dedi or Pashto words aren't italicized. Like even something small like that is huge, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, I'm being talked to. I'm the audience that he may be envisioning. I'm part of that audience. I'm, it's not just, you know, there are no asterisks. <laughs> There's no like this, is, which I mean, I know our our population is very diverse, even in terms of like like um, language, whatever facility, but of the native languages. But I, I'm just saying like, it's so cool to see this kind of, um, yeah, this like Dylan by skill and attitude. Also, like I'm thinking of Aria Aber, a uh, wonderful poet, and you might have seen her work in The New Yorker. She has that wonderful poem about- She's Afghan also a great Twitter follow, by the way. I strongly <laughs> recommend, she's very funny. She's very, she has a very good personality on, on Twitter. So sorry, and, go on. And on the gram, yep. Um, yeah, but she has that great poem um, called like Afghan Funeral in Paris and where she's, I mean, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and butcher it. You should read the thing itself. But where basically it's like, oh, here I am surrounded by my aunts and uncles, and they have all lost a son or daughter. And, um, but who am I to say anything? Like, I go on getting my pedicures and madeleines and eating my madeleines. And, like, you know, just, like, bringing it back to, like, what's real. Like, you know, she's talking, like, in the poem, she talks about wanting to go back. And then her aunt's like, it's not for you to want. So just like, what's our responsibility as artists? Like, how can you keep your self in check in terms of how you're writing about the quote homeland, um, you know, like your relationship to it? Because I think it, it can, we can be guilty and complicit of the very things that we're pointing our fingers to. But these artists and, you know, others like them are doing this really exciting work of, of like, of yeah, pushing back and um, yeah. So that's. <laughs> yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing. Um, there's one question that kind of 
and actually connects to what you're talking about when it comes to Afghan uh, artists specifically. Like, I am art is my profession. That this is sort of what I do as a full time um, thing. And I, I wanted to turn to uh, uh, Gazelle, which is just kind of what at what age did you decide that you know that you wanted art that you wanted to focus art as your primary uh, career and just sort of what led to that. And yeah, cause I'm just, I'm always fascinated by this. Well, honestly, like I was drawing and writing stories like since I was three, <laughs> like I went to Montessori uh, preschool where they have stations. So you pick what you want to do and they had the shapes, metal shapes that you trace. I was all about the shapes. <laughs> So I feel like um, at least definitely as a young person, it was always in my mind that I wanted to do that. Um, I think as I got older, like these ideas of practicality and financial security and everything like created more doubt. Um, I, in undergrad, I also studied international studies. And I think that that also very much influenced my art practice but by the time i graduated i was so depressed because i think i went into it kind of idealistic and then by the end i was like oh my gosh it seems like almost every world problem comes back to the u.s government and um i think also at that time i had kind of this idealistic view of like going to other places and helping them you know, develop or whatever. And then I, when I realized the, the route, I thought, you know, I actually like just need to stay in the US and like try to fix what's going on here. But um, I was really just like too depressed to do that. <laughs> and so then I, I, um, I delved into art more wholeheartedly. And going specifically, and either of you can answer this question, when it comes to challenges within the Afghan community, when it comes to, you know, having the work that you do and specifically like work, working in uh, different kinds of art forms, when it comes to like compensation, because as someone who I used to, to my student organization, my Afghan student organization in college. And whenever we had culture shows or, you know, things like that, we would always ask for mus local musicians, local artists to donate their time. And, you know, we were, we were just undergrad kids. We, we, we couldn't pay anybody, let alone pay. But it's this idea that like a lot, a lot of times that I've experienced at, on the organization level, um, an expectation that artists and creatives donate their time within the Afghan space. And it's like, at the end of the day, uh, you have bills to pay, you have, you need to purchase food, you have to go, you know, go through that process. Have you had challenging, have you had this as like a, a challenging thought that you've had to go through, had difficult conversations within the community, things like that? <laughs> and I'm opening it up for either one of you. <laughs> Just thinking through. Mm. 
Well, we've also encountered that question ourselves in AWA because we, you know, part of our work is amplifying the works of other Afro-American artists. And when we put together our, the exhibit that Gazelle spoke about um, in California uh, a year ago, or even earlier, we did another one in New York uh, in 2015, um, that was you know, we were not, we are not a nonprofit organization. We don't receive grants. We're volunteer run. And so we had the same issue that we deal with as artists. We were, you know, I mean, we, we acknowledged it in a very um, honest way that, you know, we would take no offense if, if an artist refused or, or declined rather to participate because of financial constraints, because we're not, we weren't in a position to, um, to compensate them. Uh, we were able to give some, uh, right, Gazelle, we were able to assist with some fees related to um, showing their work, like framing, if, if shipping, mm -hmm. yeah. But um, I, um, I, unlike Gazelle, I'm, I'm not a full-time artist, uh, and very sadly so. I, I, I aspire to that life. I mean, I, I have a... Um, uh, nine to five or nine to nine these days, but that it helps me cover, you know, basically do the art as well. Um, I mean, I, I like the work that I do as well. But um, so for me, I've made decisions, you know, to participate in things that were voluntary if I really believed in in that event or cause or, um, you know, like I, I, it was a pleasure for me to work with um, uh, another poet, Nagina, in, in present, Hamidi, for pre in presenting on, at the AAC a couple of years ago on poetry. Or, um, um, you know, I've done some mentorship work with Afghan women in, in Afghanistan, Afghan writers, and things like that. Like that, those are, like that is my way of, um, I, I shouldn't say my way, but it's, that is important to me. And I understand those organizations are not in a position to pay. But in terms of sharing my work at any time, like I, I, I sometimes have had to decline just because the amount of effort and time was extraordinary compared to how it would land or any difference it would make on the other side. It was, it was um, so I think, you know, it's like a balancing act. Um, I wish I'm encouraged that we are living in a time where people are, you know, saying, "Hey, I, I'm going to have to say no unless I get paid," because, as you said, I have to feed myself or my family. So, and I, I just hope that the more that that message is communicated, that artists don't have to be starving. Like this, not a, this is not a, um, an ideal. This is not a doesn't. It's not a. We shouldn't take that for granted. We should change that. Thank you for sharing that, Sarajan. Um, I guess just to end on an empowering note, or actually, um, Gazelle, did you have anything to add to that, Gazelle? Um, well, I would just say that I think something that I've more recently realized mm -hmm. took me a while, but it's like artists are always put in this position of like scarcity or like feeling like they have to rely or like take every opportunity that comes to them because there's not enough opportunities. And 
Um, but you know, these art spaces, these curators, these galleries, these museums, they can't function without artists. So there has to be a change in that power dynamic because right now it's very much feels like curators, galleries, et cetera, they're here and artists are here. But really they can't function, they don't have a job without us. So I think that along with changing that starving artist mentality, it's really important for artists to remember that and kind of like own their power basically. Wow, that's, uh, thank you for putting it that way. It really made me think like these spaces would not exist without, you know, the people to fill them, the, mm -hmm. the art to fill them, so something for all of us to think of as we head back to museums in one day inshallah <laughs> in person. Um, so I guess now to end on like um, hopefully an empowering note, um, what ways has either of your Afghan identities opened doors for you or better understand, um, bettered your understanding and worldview? We're ending on a thinker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think in general, it helps me relate to people like of different backgrounds and to have empathy. Um, so I, I find that to really be a strength of having that, that bicultural identity. Yeah, I would say, yeah, same. It's helped me build relationships within the diaspora and beyond. Um, and I, I love remembering that, that it has afforded me much more opportunities than it has foreclosed them. Mm. Yeah, Th thank you, that was, that was nice. Um, a huge shout out to both of you, Gazelle and Sahara for taking the time to speak to us unpaid. So <laughs> go, I, I do wanna just, you know, for any of those who can pay their creatives, pay your creatives. This is labor. Like this is, this isn't just a, um, a conversation of arts as like some sort of esoteric aesthetic. Like that's, no, it's also labor. Like it's someone who takes that time should be compensated for it. I think so. Um, so thank you. Thank everyone for, uh, for tuning in. Um, for those thank who, you thank, you. <laughs> oh, wow. thank you. Uh, for those of uh, who want to continue to listen to these kinds of conversations, you can follow us at Samoa Network on all of our social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can follow us, uh, our podcast, Samoa Network has a podcast, and we're actually going to be continuing to listen to, or sorry, we're going to be continuing to have these conversations with Afghan creatives, artists. Uh, we're going to try to do it with a little bit more deep diving on their work themselves, both Sahar and Ghazal have uh, an amazing work that they, you, you can find them online on their websites, things like that. Um, I'm going to turn to uh, Gazelle, Gazelle to, by the way, let's take a side note. <laughs> so just a peek behind the curtain. We have with us here Gazelle and Gazelle, which was probably the first time that I don't, for as long as I've been moderating anything to have that kind of an issue. And that's what makes uh, these spaces so great because where else are you going to get two results in a, in a uh, forum together? Uh, Never. So 
Exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Never. <laughs> not, the answer is not enough. <laughs> not enough. Correct. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to turn to uh, Gazelle, who, uh, if you can sort of talk about AWA and then specifically the, the event that's going to be happening on Friday before we uh, fully sign off. Yeah. Um, so AWA is a multidisciplinary group of artists, writers, scholars, and our work really focuses on um, like dismantling these hegemonic narratives about Afghanistan and the diaspora. And we put on like a range of events from art exhibits to poetry readings. And this Friday, we have a panel conversation um, called Reimagining Queer Futures, Afghans and Art in the Diaspora. Um, it's gonna be Friday, October 30th, 11 a.m. Pacific time or 2 p.m. Eastern time. And you can go to our website, awa.net, that's three A's, A-A-A-W-A.net. And there'll be a link there where you can register and then you'll receive a Zoom link so that you can tune into the conversation. Yeah, we're, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So again, thank you so much, uh, Gazelle, Sahad, and of course, my co-host, Ghazal. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, wife.